0: So welcome to Building Local Power. I'm your host, John Farrell, co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For this episode, we're talking energy democracy. It's not just a concept, but a wonderful book edited by Denise Fairchild and Al Weinrub. And Denise, president of the Emerald Cities Collaborative, joins me today to talk about the book. Welcome, Denise.
1: Well, thank you, John. I'm glad to be on your program and have a conversation about this important topic.
0: Yes. Well, I just want to say thank you again for taking the time and thank you for Uh, putting together this book. It was delightful. I really enjoyed reading it, um, especially as I work on energy democracy uh, issues uh, through the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and many of the organizations that we collaborate with. Um, I was hoping that we could start with a story of how energy democracy is playing out. You know, is there something happening out in the world that you see sort of embodying this notion of energy democracy that you draw inspiration from?
1: Well, you know, the the book itself uh, that that Al and I put together really is a, a book of stories. There's stories of all the wonderful efforts that are going on and grassroots frontline communities really trying to uh, bring energy into uh, a, a clean energy future that's owned and controlled by communities. So, I mean, we you know the the voices of nontraditional environmentalists, as you might think about it, are is just what the book is about. From from the young suburban high school. Uh, students who just wanted to put solar on their roofs and accidentally politicized an entire community that is now fueling a national co-op movement. I mean, I love that story. But then there's there's the story of of uh, immigrant refugees, you know, Chinese immigrants, basically monolingual populations on the West Coast that are not only fighting Chevron and and fossil in the fossil fuel industry because it's it's keeping them in the hospital with respiratory and asthma cases. Uh, but they are; these are folks that are now at the forefront of California's progressive energy policies. Uh, but what's most even compelling about that is that they're also, you know, participating in rallies for Black Lives Matter, as an example, because they are seeing the connections between the environment, the economy, and equity. That is all sort of rooted in this sort of notion of how our economy is just screwing everybody, uh, or or even the fight of the clean local Clean Energy Alliance, which is fighting to make community choice a reality uh, or really, really about community um, and not just putting energy services in the hands of government, but making sure that government is also engaging community in its governance of of these energy resources. And they're also taking on the the struggle to democratize PG&E, as you know, because of the the bankruptcy and the recent climate fires that's that's taken place on the West Coast, um, there's a restructuring. There will be a restructuring taking place with PG&E and, and the communities in the fight about how we actually take this large utility and, and put uh, these assets in the hands of communities. So that, that's what the book is about. There's stories like this. But the, my favorite story is really the one that embodies for me what what the struggle is and then and, and what the hope is, the story of One Voice in uh, Jackson, in, in Mississippi. And this is a story about uh, uh, black rural communities. And, you know, folks think about rural communities, they don't recognize there's a lot of black folks in, in rural communities and, and how these uh, One Voice is going around really community organizing, knocking on doors one by one and actually asking people the question, do you know that you own an energy company? And most of the folks in these communities don't uh, recognize that they are part of a co op um, and they have never uh, seen a dividend check. They have never participated in the governance of these rural co ops. Um, at the same time, they're seeing that their utility bills are, you know, that represent 40% of their household budgets. These, many of these co ops are still burning coal. Um, The profits that are being realized out of these rural co-ops are often used to support conservative issues and conservative politicians against the interests of of these community residents. This is one story in the book where this organizing is uh, bringing knowledge and education, not only knowledge and education, to the residents themselves, but they're politicizing the residents and training them through their their institute for um, electrification, rural electrification, about the bylaws, about what it means to be a member of a co-op, and then getting residents to actually think about running to be on the board, to begin to transform who governs these assets so that, that they can burn clean energy, so that they can get out of coal, that the profits can, in fact, be used to reinvest in other community needs and to build community wealth. So anyway, that's that's my favorite story, and I, I guess part of it is because I, I was able, uh, recently we, we did an energy tour of many of these local efforts that are taking place around the country, and I got to visit a couple of these rural counties outside of Jackson, Mississippi, to actually see people come to these meetings for the first time ever in decades actually getting a dividend check because of the word, I guess, has been going around that there's a movement afoot, uh, they're getting checks for like 20 years that may run from 1960 to 1980, but these checks were like for $50, $60. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, plantation politics still taking place in the South. Rural co-ops are all over the country, and um, uh, and I think it's it's part of what we're trying to see or how we see energy democracy playing itself out.
0: One of the things I really liked in the book, and I think it relates to both what you said, you already kind of introduced this discussion about PG&E, this big utility in California, but I think it matters as well related to the co-ops is there's this core thread about treating energy as a commons rather than as a private commodity. And I, I feel like we're in this moment where this concept is really coming alive. So you mentioned Community Choice, the work of Local Clean Energy Alliance, and millions of California residents and communities are exercising their right to have that kind of local control Uh, there's a bill in the Maine legislature to make one of the largest electric electric transmission companies public uh, because of uh, how it's kind of mismanaged uh, the, the delivery of service to customers in maine and then you have this you know pg e here that's the second bankruptcy of one of california's largest electric utilities because of this mismanagement of its infrastructure and you have as you said you know a restructuring, you know, maybe even a public takeover in the offing. You know, is this where this notion of the commons really gets started? You know, are there other examples that we should know about uh, where this commons conversation is happening?
1: Well, in fact, John, these are really good examples that you highlighted about um, putting our energy resources into the hands of, of the public um, and the community. Um, these are tools, uh, you would say, of shared governance and, and resource management. In fact, what's interesting is that uh, the California Public Utilities Commission estimated uh, itself that in five years or so, as much as 60% of California's energy services will be in public hands through community choice aggregation. Now, as you can imagine, that's being fiercely fought um, by the investor-owned utilities, but it really does represent the, the, the sentiment about um who who should own and who should control energy and how could it could be best managed and governed. But I don't think that just because we're putting energy into it, and that's not where the commons came from and I don't uh, the idea of the commons is coming from and, and I don't think just putting our energy resources in into the hands of government suggests that we're actually going to get to energy democracy. In fact if you you sort of leverage or riff off of what I just mentioned about Rural electric co-ops. I mean, these are essentially, you know, public resources that are being not used for public purposes. So, uh, the commons has a, a sort of a deeper, you know, first of all, the commons, the idea of the commons is is core, it's core to the energy democracy movement as we're we're trying to build it, and it's really about our our relationship at a deeper level to the environment, and how we even achieve sort of this. Eco ecosystem balance um, it's it's really rooted in something more more spiritual about um, how we value the gifts that nature offers us as, as a human species and and our responsibility to respect nature uh, that nature actually belongs to no one um, and we must not only like share it but prudently conserve it and, and regenerate it. But this this is not a radical idea. I mean, there's nothing uncommon about the idea of the commons. It's really rooted a lot in, in traditional societies. It's, it's one of the reasons why it's really important to bring the lived and cultural experiences of, of communities of color into this con- conversation about our clean energy future. Um, indigenous communities um, here in America was really, uh, a lot of the ideas of the commons was, was really rooted in you know locally here in in our our native uh, native american communities about how we when we fish what days we fish what we can fish what trees we cut down what trees we don't touch um again a lot of it is is rooted in in a sense of the the spirit world that these are these are living entities and which elders may even be still living you know in in another world it's, I I've interviewed over a dozen of my colleagues throughout the African diaspora, and trying to ask them what they recall of their own African uh, experiences, and you know, they faintly remember, you know, their their culture where it says, you know, we, you know, these these are resources that needs to be shared, protected, and they're taboos about what you cannot do with this uh, these these gifts. But it's it's also the the idea of commons is part of the, the Magna Carta in the 13th century. It's part of our modern public trust laws. It's it's foundational to the New Deal. In fact, rural electric co-ops, milk co-ops have all been sort of rooted in the idea of the commons. And our national parks, whether it's uh, Yellowstone or Grand Canyon, these are commons. These are natural resources that we're holding in public trust. Um, and even our internet are... are you know, hopefully we can keep it as a our other open source system. So the commons is is fairly uh, common. And, and it really does require us to reexamine who we are, what kind of society we want to live in, and what's our relationship to the environment, uh, to capital, and to each other.
0: I want to take a step back to something, to sort of the bigger concept of energy democracy, because I think this is really, that conversation about the commons was so interesting in the book, both the spiritual connection, the connection to indigenous communities, but also a lot of the, you know, political history that the white Europeans have brought as there's a, a fairly significant thread about the commons. And then you also have, uh, it's this broader concept than of energy democracy. So commons is this core piece of it. I'm just curious, you know, how would, how did you define in the book this concept of energy democracy? Like what are the core principles in addition to the commons that are important about it? And And then what does it look like when we achieve energy democracy? How is our system, instead of being, you know, parceled out with private ownership of energy resources, how is that going to look different?
1: John, I think that's always the hardest question that people ask me is, you know, what what is energy democracy? You know, we we've had a, a number of meetings. In fact, uh, in two weeks, I think about 40 energy democracy practitioners will be in Detroit and we'll be, again, sharing what each is doing and, and trying to find some some of the sort of the common language and uh common needs and challenges and begin to work together to help each other. Uh but there is no clear, straightforward, one line answer about what energy democracy is. But for me I, I think it's a way to reimagine, re engineer, and rebuild our economy. Again, it's really about redefining our relationship to, to capital, to the environment, to each other. It's sort of acknowledges the sort of intersectional relationship between the environment, the economy, and equity, Uh, and and to recognize that fixing income inequality, fixing racism, fixing gender inequality, fixing environmental degradation really requires changing an economy that's screwing up everything. Um, So it's really a, a framework for understanding all that's going wrong and and energy democracy perhaps being an antidote to all of that uh where we where we're bringing in you know, different ba- values and experience to the conversation and and we we there is no we we asked uh, the authors of the book for example to put their values and principles together and everyone had a different set of values they were they're overlapping and there were some commonalities but you know there isn't like five values that we hold on to other than the fact that um because we we're bringing threads of, of different historic struggles into an energy democracy movement, so the struggle for land rights and civil rights and environmental justice and um, you know correctional reform. all of this is finally moving into sort of a meta-level social change movement for democratizing our economy uh, through the energy sector. Um, it lays out you know principles that speak to how we democratize governance of the energy sector, how we democratize and liberate the environment, uh, and our natural resources from from greed and commodification, how we democratize our economy. So these are sort of constructs and, and in fact we're we're taking these constructs, you know, about what is a, a, a democratized energy economy look like and putting it into a scorecard so we can begin to see how communities look from you know, the extreme right, which is, you know, an extractive economy that is really about fossil fuels to the sort of extreme extraction to to one that is, you know, the vision of energy democracy. What what does that really look like? What are the policies that undergird that? So we're in the process of, of envisioning this, and we're using the voices and the experience of communities to animate this and to really define what that future is. So we're co-creating this. And so I don't have a clear, unfortunately, answer for you, but we are, we are, we, we have a, a framework around which we're working.
0: You know, I should have asked this question in the context of, I, I, um, wasn't attempting to define it entirely, but tried to define it mostly in the scope of ILSR's work, but kind of had three core concepts that we identified in the work that we do about what energy democracy means. And I think there's a lot of overlap. You know, one was, around about the sources and ownership of energy generation being distributed widely. Uh, another one was about the management of the energy system being government governed with democratic principles so that there would be more local and community-based governance and that you would have wide distribution of power generation and ownership and that the access to both of those things would be in, not inhibited by... Race or socioeconomic status or the traditional barriers that we've seen, and I think I think there's some pieces. There are some bigger pieces that are in the book that I really appreciated, and I think a little bit more historical perspective. But that's one of the way we've tried at ILSR, at least, to define it in I think more narrow terms, just in the energy sector.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. When I talk about uh, democratizing uh, governance, it's really about you know, the uh, community engagement and community organizing and who sits at the table and who makes the decision and uh... where's the local control about uh, that future so it's democratizing government it, governance as i said is democratizing the uh, the environment which is rooted in the, the notion of the the commons and uh, the elements that uh... how the commons is seen as a public good and how we look at uh... strategies and tools for uh, resource management, shared resource management is about democratizing uh, the economy. And so we are actually uh decommodifying uh the energy resources and, and putting the, the the profits, the wealth back into the hands of the community uh, to build community wealth. So those are the those are the pillars of energy democracy.
0: We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the importance of decentralizing the economy, the parallels between the fight for energy democracy and the abolition movement, and how a bottom-up approach to clean energy can scale rapidly.
1: Hey everyone,
0: it's Hiba. Instead of our usual break, I've got a new podcast recommendation for you today. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, check out The Next World, a podcast about building movements. The Next World is a monthly podcast from our friends at the National Economic and Social Rights Initiative, also known as NESRI. The show explores and celebrates the work of poor people's movements in the U.S. They highlight systemic organizing led by women, LGBT folks, and people of color pushing forward new models for change. You can find them on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the show. So another concept that I saw coming through in the book and it was especially noted in the introduction um, but before a lot of the stories was this notion about a transformation from centralized to decentralized and I think that's super important because it came about in terms of both like the ownership of the system but also the concentration of wealth and you know we're we're seeing the downside of a centralized system you know not just an environmental degradation you know and health impacts but also in some spectacular failures of capitalism, like the recently mothballed VC summer nuclear plant in South Carolina, where poor management by these utility executives is basically going to cost energy customers in that region $9 billion for literally nothing. They, got, they have nothing to show for it. No energy was ever generated. Um can you talk a little bit about the different ways you see us needing to decentralize you know both in terms of the scale of energy generation but also about this you know these issues of management and ownership and and what do you see as some of the benefits specifically in decentralizing control and ownership
1: So let me start with perhaps the the benefits of decentralizing first first of all let's just recognize that the there is an energy revolution underway and and it's it's happening because of climate change is I, it's, it's driving utilities themselves to um, you know, re-examine their business model. And it's also being driven by the fact that new technologies, new energy technologies are coming to the forefront. That is now cheaper than uh, coal. It's, it's increasingly cheaper than gas and other forms of fossil fuels. The utilities themselves are actually moving to... Uh, decentralize not only their source of energy but also how they distribute energy into communities it's it's going to be to their advantage to their bottom line so that's that's one thing that is going to happen the question is how it happens um, again the democratization of it so that it happens in a way that communities uh, benefit most but um, the other benefits is that it's it's about resilience i mean if people have an a picture of anything they they have a picture of Puerto Rico and how the entire blackout of a, of a country resulted as re, as the fact of, that you had a, a centralized grid and there was no redundancy in the energy infrastructure and so being able to have you know redundant overlapping energy sources prevents that kind of overwhelming blackout and conditions of extreme weather and other uh, climate climate hazards. Um, so it's about resilience uh, the benefit is also about what you care about most and your your members is local self-reliance and local control. I mean you own and control a, a huge sector of, of the economy um, and be able to use it to good use to community purposes and um, community services. Uh, that is what a decentralized infrastructure provide you which is very different from what a monopoly does a monopoly is essentially controlled with a few people and you just you just get to pay for the service uh, decentralized infrastructure really changes the 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 algorithm for that as, as a way and for for our communities it really is about how that those assets are then used for other community revitalization and other community needs and purposes and how we don't just use it for profits and individual wealth building but use it for community well-being. So these are some of the some of the benefits that I I think the new infrastructure and the new sort of clean energy decentralization is going to offer. And there are different kinds of decentralized infrastructure. There you know there's the rooftop, you know, there's the solar, there's solar plus batteries, there's microgrid. So I guess the technologies are quickly quickly advancing. But it's it's hard work. This is expensive. Uh, there's a lot of technical knowledge that that's required to really figure out how you put some of these community grids together, in particular. And it's, it's particularly important for low-income uh, communities and communities that uh, are renters or people that live in apartments that really don't have control or have the access to rooftop solar. You know, the community grids and really in virtual meeting becomes really important options for them. So. How do you do it at a scale with, in communities that are already built out, and for for people who don't have ready access or are not homeowners to to be able to have access to this new clean energy resource? So it's expensive. Um, there's a not a not enough technical resources and, and financing putting into this space that will allow us to move at the at the speed that we need to. But I, I believe that um, those are sort of why we need to get there, because the, the opportunities are there to, to, re, to re-engineer our entire infrastructure for community purpose.
0: You know, I was really drawn to your conclusion in the book, and I want to come back to this issue about, you know, some of the financial resources. I, I have another question I'm really interested in asking you in a minute, but I was really drawn in the conclusion this uh, comparison that you drew between the energy democracy movement and the abolitionist movement to to end slavery, and you explained in that section that abolitionists had to fight the three pillars supporting slavery, uh, property rights, profits, and then power and privilege. And I really thought it was important for people to understand the similarities. I was, I mean, I frankly, I was just blown away by the similarities between the two and was hoping that you could explain a little bit about how a centralized, fossil fuel energy system is supported by these pillars like what what is an illustration of these three factors property rights profits power and privilege in uh, in our current energy system
1: it's interesting how I even got to that framework where you know it became very clear to me that our work that we're all struggling to dismantle the fossil fuel economy is in fact um, analogous to what it took to dismantle the slave economy um and and that um that was a 250 year struggle and my hope is that we our struggle is either close to being 250 years or we'll get there faster either way but bottom line is you know as a, a history buff and somebody who really cares about um the history of my people I I do a lot of reading you know stuff that you didn't get in school about slavery and emancipation and part of it is to understand where, where I'm am I in this arc towards justice and the work that we do here at Emerald Cities. Am I in the struggle and, and what what is that struggle? And it, it became really clear that, you know, the the struggle continues um and then it 's all around those same pillars as you examine where 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 slaves were the the source of energy in in the slave economy we we look at fossil fuel as the the new property right the, the the access to land and natural resources and and the right to own land and to commodify and to monetize it and and the mass accumulation of uh mass production and mass um Consumption and the mass accumulation of wealth is all around this this notion of ownership and 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 individualism and, and property and that ownership and control so that that's core and and we, we we see that in in the courts today where we're struggling around does the government have the right to uh, lease public lands to um, mineral extraction and we 're fighting this notion of private versus public public land and public resources and public property it's around our water systems where people are saying well, you don't have the right mr and mrs government to tell us we can't pollute our water systems um so it is about property it's about profits in the energy sector where the top 10 energy utility firms in the fortune 500 companies they they make over a trillion dollars in uh, half trillion dollars uh, in market value each, and they 're benefiting from a natural monopoly they 're benefiting by the fact that they have an exclusive right to uh, the energy infrastructure they have um, huge subsidies that are coming from us from taxpayers that are feeding into that profit uh, and they are not or they fight to pay for the external uh externalities the the cost of of polluting our environment, the cost of uh, the health care. So uh, the the extreme profits in, in the energy sector is in the fossil fuel industry particularly is part of what we have to fix when, when we talk about energy democracy. We've got to take public subsidies out of the fossil fuel industry and put it in the hands of, of a clean energy future. Uh, we, we've got to protect our natural resources and, not make it, you know, uh, owned by, you know, a, a limited, you know, 1% in the population. And because at the end of the day, what we're, we're doing is fueling the, the power and the privilege element of it, which is the inequalities that, that come out of that that kind of capitalist structure where social, economic, and political inequalities. I mean, if you want to look at it one level, I mean, the CEOs of these fossil fuel industries, I think there's a recent study that showed that, they make between 150 to 500 times that of the average American in terms of their compensation package, uh, but the burdens, uh, you know, the benefits and burdens of, of that that industry is un- unevenly distributed. So, um, and they're using that those revenues to to buy more privilege. So they they bought our politicians, thing, and we have to find a way to. Uh, make sure that we are uh, taking back our, our our government and taking back our politicians by taking money out of politics. So those are some. I mean, we probably can talk an entire session just on the analogies, but those are the elements that you know, energy democracy is really changing in terms of how it how it views the property, how it views profits, how it. Deals with issues of inequities.
0: This last concept around power and privilege is so interesting. You know, there are, I think, some really hopeful signs. I'm thinking about in the Democratic primary, a lot of candidates being pressured or feeling the pressure to refuse fossil fuel money in terms of contributions. So, kind of helping to break that connection between the 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 profits and the uh, and the wealth of those companies and access to our political system. Um, You see it in Virginia during the last uh, state election cycle there, you had candidates saying we won't take money from the monopoly electric company, Dominion Power, because we recognize that if we do, and it's a monopoly, like it's our job to oversee them. And if we're taking money, we can't do that without it being a conflict of interest. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about this notion about power and privilege in terms of access to resources. To sort of build the alternative to the energy system that we have, and I was thinking of this in a couple of ways. You know, one of them was around, I think, just this notion of governance, uh, and, and we're going in two different directions. I'll try to get narrow down this question mm-hmm. for you. One of them is I've been thinking about a lot is this notion about, um, and it, it, I think the story that you shared about one voice in Mississippi is so important. Is that we might have local governance structures already in place you know we already have local governments we might have in the case of these folks in mississippi a locally owned utility but it doesn't mean that it's being exercised in a democratic manner. it doesn't mean that everybody is actually having access to that governance structure they might not even be aware that they have a vote in that system and it might be in the interest of the people who are currently in power not to invite them to the table So, you know, we see this playing out on the national level around like voting rights as well as we see down at the local level. It's just one issue that I've noticed comes up when we talk about local self-reliance that some folks are thinking, well, I don't know about local because I don't necessarily have a chance to participate locally. There's this other piece, though, and that I sort of had put together more thoroughly before our conversation I wanted to ask you about, but want to invite you to sort of take either one. In terms of what you're interested in responding to is about this access to money so you know we talked you talked about some of these technologies that we have that are localized you know it's solar panels or solar panels and batteries that that give us the opportunity to decentralize the system to distribute ownership um, but i've just been really struck and one of the things that i've been coming across in in the last couple of years in my reading is about the way that the financial system and our government have really limited the access of many Americans to money, just in general. But uh, when I think about its impact here on the energy system, uh, there was a recent New York Times Magazine article by Matthew Desmond, and he explains how for at least 100 years after the end of slavery, the federal government was using specific policies, whether it was in the Veterans Affairs Department or the Federal Housing Administration, to keep African Americans from buying homes, and of course, home ownership was like the biggest engine of wealth building for the middle class, uh, particularly after World War II. And 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 these policies have created this enormous wealth gap between whites and 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 non-white residents of the United States. And so, I guess what I'm really interested in is how do we address some of these past harms? What are the tools that we need to do, or or how do we even acknowledge this problem? Uh, that seems really unrelated to the energy sector at first and yet becomes so important when we talk about giving communities the resources to build wealth locally.
1: I do believe this is a a new era, a, a new era that we've been here before of building collective economics, you know, cooperative economies, and particularly as it relates to Energy cooperatives and finding ways where we're taking our energy resources and and allowing the um the opportunities of an of an entire sector of the economy to be used for the purposes of creating community wealth, not individual wealth community wealth uh that allows everyone uh, allows abundance for everyone in that community, which is a fundamentally different premise than you know, individual home ownership, right? Which is, it's it's a part of really thinking about again how we how we relate to capitalism and how we relate to money in a different kind of way that's that's going to be supportive of entire community well being. So the so I, I think that we have um, a lot of history in in this space. It's not anything new to folks that have been locked out of mainstream economy that they've had to find other ways to feed their families, to shelter their families, to educate their kids. We've always done it in a cooperative manner. You there's so many books that talk about really just even out of sorry to go back to the you know, to to my own culture, but the the history of emancipation where people who had no money or very little money Pulled what they had and and bought land in commons. There was thousands and thousands of lands, particularly after Civil War, where people bought land, uh, slaves, ex-slaves bought the land and were very productive in it. But then that land was stolen. It was burnt. And, you know, there's so many really tragic stories about how these efforts towards uh, collective economics were undermined or even large communities where that were burnt down completely. The Wall Streets of Oklahoma, what what have you, were burned down completely. So uh, I, I think the new era is an opportunity to re-engage in those kinds of um, local self-reliance uh, approaches of cooperative um, methods of owning land and owning um, our natural resources and owning capital together in a way that has community benefits and that's That's the hope I have in all of this. I, I think the whole idea of the, of the environment is great, and what we can do to decarbonize you know everything and, and address climate change is, is critical to sort of the, the environment that, that we need and the existential threat that we change. But I think what is really radical, what's really transformative, what is really hopeful, is how we are able to take this, this moment in time to actually really build a a cooperative economy where where communities can actually uh, have a voice and actually uh, benefit uh, very directly from from investments in the transformation that's underway.
0: Um, We're running a little short on time, and I had one other question that I think is important to ask you, because I get asked this a lot. Um, There are several authors in the book who talked about local decision-making. You and and I both have talked about local self-reliance. Uh, Steve Servas and Anthony Giancaterino in the book describe local, quote, local policy organizing has the flexibility to experiment with different solutions, allow for community participation and control in the decision-making process. At ILSR, we use the term subsidiarity, which means decisions should be made closest to where people are affected by them. A question I get a lot about this notion of local self-reliance, local control is, you know, the problems that we have are on a global scale, like climate change, can we really scale up this model of energy democracy in fast enough to address this global climate crisis or do we have to rely on the, you know the big institutions the big companies that have concentrated all the wealth to do this for us
1: you know i, I think this this whole notion of local um local self-reliance is it's, it's happening it's it's working already i mean if you, if you just look at it from the standpoint that 70% of americans alone want clean energy and Two thirds of Americans believe in climate change, <clears throat> I think the the barometer is obviously suggesting that um what we care about most people care about. I think our real challenge about scaling this is really about again getting back to the question about getting money out of politics, uh getting money out of uh the fossil fuel industry, and getting the politicians out of the way, so the investments that we're currently making to to prop up um, and and allow profiteering to take place in the fossil fuel industry can be invested in um, decentralized locally owned and controlled energy systems i mean it's just really a question of the imbalance in where we're we're putting you know uh, public resources if if we had the same kind of money and subsidies that we're putting in the in the private fossil fuel industry and put it into this clean energy, energy democracy future that we're talking about, we can get to scale and we can get to scale uh, quickly. And this, this movement is not limited to the United States. The, the, the global south and, and as you can see in terms of the, even the Paris Accord, I mean, they, they have the same challenge because we are all dealing with the same multinational fossil fuel industry. And so um, it is, it's a people struggle. And and it's only through that 70% who wants clean energy and two-thirds who believe in climate change that's going to make the difference to get politics out of um, the future that we all care about.
0: So, Denise, we often end our podcast by asking for a reading recommendation, but since we're talking about your book, I'd like to first propose everyone that is listening should go read this book. Uh, It is a really crucial way to understand the challenges that we face in the energy sector, and in our economy more broadly, and how best to address them. Uh, You already alluded to this, though, that you have a love of history and and do a lot of reading on your own about this issue and in in comparison to other issues. So I'm curious if there's something else you've read that you think would help folks understand the idea and importance of energy democracy, or just that you think is important for people to read.
1: Well, let's see. There's so many books. But you know what I think what I'd love, folks, because I think we're so fixated on technologies that... We are losing the sensibilities about what energy democracy really is about. So I would probably recommend the book, uh, Think Like a Commoner. I'm sure you may even know about it. It was written several years ago by uh, David Bollier, I think his name is, um, as a really important read about what does the commons look like and how do we think about our natural resources, the environment, and our energy resources as a common.
0: Well, thank you very much, Denise. I just want to say thank you again for this book, Energy Democracy, Advancing Equity and Clean Energy Solutions. We'll have a link to where folks can find the book uh, from their independent bookseller on our show page, uh, as well as Think Like a Commoner and some other resources related to our conversation. Thanks again, Denise. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to Building Local Power. This is John Farrell, ILSR co-director. I was speaking with Denise Fairchild, president of Emerald Cities Collaborative, about the book she and Al Weinrobe co-edited called Energy Democracy, Advancing Equity in Clean Energy Solutions. You can see links to the book, articles mentioned in the podcast conversation, and Denise's reading recommendations on the podcast show page. While you're at our website, you can also find more than 60 past episodes of the Building Local Power podcast and show us some love with a contribution to help cover the costs of producing this podcast. You can also help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts, or just drop us a line at podcast at ILSR.org. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and Hiba Muray. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. Please join us next time in Building Local Power.